Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast about gothic literature. Join us as we listen to spooky stories and stories that I, I, I don't... Ow. This hurts my voice. Hey, everyone. This is D.B. Spitzer. This is recorded at the KZOM Studios in Oleander, Oregon. This We're going to be going with uh, Matthew Lewis's The Monk. I'm not sure if we have anyone talking about this this month, but... This is gothic literature. This is one of those old school goth lit stories that, you know, this is gothic literature. So check it out. The Monk, uh, read by J.R. White. I can't remember who it is. I just edited this and heard it a billion times. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Radio Free Oleander, PGTTCM.com. Rate, review, subscribe, check out the podcast, and look for us online. By James K. White. The Monk, A Romance, by Matthew Gregory Lewis. Chapter 4, Part 2. I probably remained for some time in this situation, since when I opened my eyes, it was broad daylight. Several peasants were standing round me, and seemed disputing whether my recovery was possible. I spoke German tolerably well. As soon as I could utter an articulate sound, I inquired after Agnes. What was my surprise and distress when assured by the peasants that nobody had been seen answering the description which I gave of her? They told me that, in going to their daily labor, they had been alarmed by observing the fragments of my carriage and by hearing the groans of a horse, the only one of the four which remained alive. The other three lay dead by my side. Nobody was near me when they came up, and much time had been lost before they succeeded in recovering me. Uneasy beyond expression respecting the fate of my companion, I besought the peasants to disperse themselves in search of her. I described her dress and promised immense rewards to whoever brought me any intelligence. As for myself, it was impossible for me to join in the pursuit. I had broken two of my ribs in the fall, my arm being dislocated, hung useless by my side, and my left leg was shattered so terribly that I never expected to recover its use. The peasants complied with my request. All left me except four who made a litter of boughs and prepared to convey me to the neighboring town. I inquired its name. It proved to be Ratisbon, and I could scarcely persuade myself that I had traveled to such a distance in a single night. I told the countryman that at one o'clock that morning I had passed through the village of Rosenwald. They shook their heads wistfully, and made signs to each other that I must certainly be delirious. I was conveyed to a decent inn and immediately put to bed. A physician was sent for, who set my arm with success. He then examined my other hurts, and told me that I need be under no apprehension of the consequences of any of them, but ordered me to keep myself quiet and be prepared for a tedious and painful cure. I answered him that if he hoped to keep me quiet, he must first endeavor to procure me some news of a lady who had quitted Rosenwald in my company the night before, and had been with me at the moment when the coach broke down. He smiled and only replied by advising me to make myself easy, for that all proper care should be taken of me. As he quitted me, the hostess met him at the door of the room. The gentleman is not quite in his right senses, I heard him say to her in a low voice. Tis the natural consequence of his fall, but that will soon be over. 
one after another the peasants returned to the inn and informed me that no traces had been discovered of my unfortunate mistress uneasiness now became despair i entreated them to renew their search in the most urgent terms doubling the promises which i had already made them my wild and frantic manner confirmed the bystanders in the idea of my being delirious no signs of the lady having appeared they believed her to be a creature fabricated by my overheated brain and paid no attention to my entreaties however the hostess assured me that a fresh inquiry should be made but i found afterwards that her promise was only given to quiet me no further steps were taken in the business though my baggage was left at munich under the care of my french servant having prepared myself for a long journey my purse was amply furnished besides my equipage proved me to be of distinction and in consequence all possible attention was paid me at the inn the day passed away still no news arrived of agnes the anxiety of fear now gave place to despondency i ceased to rave about her and was plunged in the depth of melancholy reflections perceiving me to be silent and tranquil my attendants believed my delirium to have abated and that my malady had taken a favorable turn according to the physician's order i swallowed a composing medicine and as soon as the night shut in my attendants withdrew and left me to repose that repose i wooed in vain the agitation of my bosom chased away sleep restless in my mind in spite of the fatigue of my body i continued to toss about from side to side till the clock in a neighboring steeple struck one as i listened to the mournful hollow sound and heard it die away in the wind i felt a sudden chillness spread itself over my body i shuddered without knowing wherefore cold dews poured down my forehead and my hair stood bristling with alarm suddenly i heard slow and heavy steps ascending the staircase by an involuntary movement i started up in my bed and drew back the curtain a single rushlight which glimmered upon the hearth shed a faint gleam through the apartment which was hung with tapestry the door was thrown open with violence a figure entered and drew near my bed with solemn measured steps with trembling apprehension i examined this midnight visitor god almighty it was the bleeding nun it was my lost companion her face was still veiled but she no longer held her lamp and dagger she lifted up her veil slowly what a sight presented itself to my startled eyes i beheld before me an animated corpse her countenance was long and haggard her cheeks and lips were bloodless the paleness of death was spread over her features and her eyeballs fixed steadfastly upon me were lustreless and hollow i gazed upon the spectre with horror too great to be described my blood was frozen in my veins i would have called for aid but the sound expired ere it could pass my lips my nerves were bound up in impotence and i remained in the same attitude inanimate as a statue the visionary nun looked upon me for some minutes in silence there was something petrifying in her regard at length in a low sepulchral voice she pronounced the following words ramon ramon thou art mine ramon ramon i am thine in thy veins while blood shall roll i am thine 
thou art mine mine thy body mine thy soul breathless with fear i listened while she repeated my own expression the apparition seated herself opposite to me at the foot of the bed and was silent her eyes were fixed earnestly upon mine they seemed endowed with the property of the rattlesnakes for i strove in vain to look off her my eyes were fascinated and I had not the power of withdrawing them from the spectres. In this attitude she remained for a whole long hour, without speaking or moving, nor was I able to do either. At length the clock struck two. The apparition rose from her seat, and approached the side of the bed. She grasped with her icy fingers my hand, which hung lifeless upon the coverture, and, pressing her cold lips to mine, again repeated, Ramon, Ramon, Thou art mine. Ramon, Ramon, I am thine, etc. She then dropped my hand, quitted the chamber with slow steps, and the door closed after her. Till that moment the faculties of my body had been all suspended. Those of my mind had alone been waking. The charm now ceased to operate. The blood which had been frozen in my veins rushed back to my heart with violence. I uttered a deep groan and sank lifeless upon my pillow. The adjoining room was only separated from mine by a thin partition. It was occupied by the host and his wife. The former was roused by my groan, and immediately hastened to my chamber. The hostess soon followed him. With some difficulty they succeeded in restoring me to my senses, and immediately sent for the physician, who arrived in all diligence. He declared my fever to be very much increased, and that, if I continued to suffer such violent agitation, he would not take upon him to ensure my life. Some medicines which he gave me in some degree tranquilized my spirits. I fell into a sort of slumber towards daybreak, but fearful dreams prevented me from deriving any benefit from my repose. Agnes and the bleeding nun presented themselves by turns to my fancy, and combined to harass and torment me. I awoke fatigued and unrefreshed. My fever seemed rather augmented than diminished. The agitation of my mind impeded my fractured bones from knitting. I had frequent fainting fits, and during the whole day the physician judged it expedient not to quit me for two hours together. The singularity of my adventure made me determine to conceal it from every one, since I could not expect that a circumstance so strange should gain credit. I was very uneasy about Agnes. I knew not what she would think at not finding me at the rendezvous, and dreaded her entertaining suspicions of my fidelity. However, I depended upon Theodore's discretion, and trusted that my letter to the baroness would convince her of the rectitude of my intentions. These considerations somewhat lightened my inquietude upon her account, but the impression left upon my mind by my nocturnal visitor grew stronger with every succeeding moment. The night drew near. I dreaded its arrival, yet I strove to persuade myself that the ghost would appear no more, and at all events I desired that a servant might sit up in my chamber. The fatigue of my body from not having slept on the former night, cooperating with the strong opiates administered to me in profusion, at length procured me that repose of which I was so much in need. I sank into a profound and tranquil slumber, 
and had already slept for some hours when the neighboring clock roused me by striking one. Its sound brought with it to my memory all the horrors of the night before. The same cold shivering seized me. I started up in my bed and perceived the servant fast asleep in an armchair near me. I called him by his name. He made no answer. I shook him forcibly by the arm and strove in vain to wake him. He was perfectly insensible to my efforts. I now heard the heavy steps ascending the staircase. The door was thrown open, and again the bleeding nun stood before me. Once more my limbs were chained in second infancy. Once more I heard those fatal words repeated, Ramon, Ramon, thou art mine. Ramon, Ramon, I am thine, etc. The scene which shocked me so sensibly on the former night was again presented. The spectre again pressed her lips to mine, again touched me with her rotting fingers, and, as on her first appearance, quitted the chamber as soon as the clock tolled two. Every night was this repeated. Far from growing accustomed to the ghost, every succeeding visit inspired me with greater horror. Her idea pursued me continually and I became the prey of habitual melancholy. The constant agitation of my mind naturally retarded the re-establishment of my health. Several months elapsed before I was able to quit my bed, and when at length I was moved to a sofa, I was so faint, spiritless, and emaciated that I could not cross the room without assistance. The looks of my attendants sufficiently denoted the little hope which they entertained of my recovery. The profound sadness which oppressed me without remission made the physician consider me to be an hypochondriac. The cause of my distress I carefully concealed in my own bosom, for I knew that no one could give me relief. The ghost was not even visible to any eye but mine. I had frequently caused attendants to sit up in my room, but the moment that the clock struck one, irresistible slumber seized them, nor left them till the departure of the ghost. You may be surprised that during this time I made no inquiries after your sister. Theodore, who with difficulty had discovered my abode, had quieted my apprehensions for her safety. At the same time he convinced me that all attempts to release her from captivity must be fruitless, till I should be in a condition to return to Spain. The particulars of her adventure, which I shall now relate to you, were partly communicated to me by Theodore and partly by Agnes herself. On the fatal night when her elopement was to have taken place, accident had not permitted her to quit her chamber at the appointed time. At length she ventured into the haunted room, descended the staircase leading into the hall, found the gates open as she expected, and left the castle unobserved. What was her surprise at not finding me ready to receive her? She examined the cavern, ranged through every alley of the neighboring wood, and passed two full hours in this fruitless inquiry. She could discover no traces either of me or of the carriage. Alarmed and disappointed, her only resource was to return to the castle before the baroness missed her, but here she found herself in a fresh embarrassment. The bell had already tolled two, the ghostly hour was past, and the careful porter had locked the folding gates. After much irresolution, she ventured to knock softly. Luckily for her, Conrad was still awake. 
he heard the noise and rose murmuring at being called up a second time no sooner had he opened one of the doors and beheld the supposed apparition waiting there for admittance than he uttered a loud cry and sank upon his knees agnes profited by his terror she glided by him flew to her own apartment and having thrown off her spectre's trappings retired to bed endeavouring in vain to account for my disappearing in the meanwhile theodore having seen my carriage drive off with the false agnes returned joyfully to the village the next morning he released cunegonda from her confinement and accompanied her to the castle there he found the baron his lady and don gaston disputing together upon the porter's relation all of them agreed in believing the existence of spectres but the latter contended that for a ghost to knock for admittance was a proceeding till then unwitnessed and totally incompatible with the immaterial nature of a spirit they were still discussing the subject when the page appeared with cunegonda and cleared up the mystery on hearing his disposition it was agreed unanimously that the agnes whom theodore had seen step into my carriage must have been the bleeding nun and that the ghost who had terrified conrad was no other than don gaston's daughter the first surprise which this discovery occasioned being over the baroness resolved to make it of use in persuading her niece to take the veil fearing lest so advantageous an establishment for his daughter should induce don gaston to renounce his resolution she suppressed my letter and continued to represent me as a needy unknown adventurer a childish vanity had led me to conceal my real name even from my mistress i wished to be loved for myself not for being the son and heir of the marquis de las cisternas the consequence was that my rank was known to no one in the castle except the baroness and she took good care to confine the knowledge to her own breast don gaston having approved his sister's design agnes was summoned to appear before them she was taxed with having meditated an elopement obliged to make a full confession and was amazed at the gentleness with which it was received but what was her affliction when informed that the failure of her project must be attributed to me cunegonda tutored by the baroness told her that when i released her i had desired her to inform her lady that our connection was at an end that the whole affair was occasioned by a false report and that it by no means suited my circumstances to marry a woman without fortune or expectations to this account my sudden disappearing gave but too great an air of probability theodore who could have contradicted the story by doña rodolfa's order was kept out of her sight what proved a still greater confirmation of my being an impostor was the arrival of a letter from yourself declaring that you had no sort of acquaintance with alfonso de alvarada these seeming proofs of my perfidy aided by the artful insinuations of her aunt by cunegonda's flattery and her father's threats and anger entirely conquered your sister's repugnance to a convent incensed at my behavior and disgusted with the world in general she consented to receive the veil she passed another month at the castle of lindenburg during which my non-appearance confirmed her in her resolution and then accompanied don gaston into spain theodore was now set at liberty he hastened to munich where i had promised to let him hear from me but finding from lucas that i never arrived there he pursued his search with indefatigable perseverance 
and at length succeeded in rejoining me at Ratisbonne. So much was I altered that scarcely could he recollect my features. The distress visible upon his sufficiently testified how lively was the interest which he felt for me. The society of this amiable boy, whom I had always considered rather as a companion than a servant, was now my only comfort. His conversation was gay, yet sensible, and his observations shrewd and entertaining. He had picked up much more knowledge than as usual, at his age, but what rendered him most agreeable to me was his having a delightful voice and no mean skill in music. He had also acquired some taste in poetry, and even ventured occasionally to write verses himself. He frequently composed little ballads in Spanish. His compositions were but indifferent, I must confess, yet they were pleasing to me from their novelty, and hearing him sing them to his guitar was the only amusement which I was capable of receiving. Theodore perceived well enough that something preyed upon my mind, but, as I concealed the cause of my grief even from him, respect would not permit him to pry into my secrets. One evening I was lying upon my sofa, plunged in reflections very far from agreeable. Theodore amused himself by observing from the window a battle between two postillions, who were quarrelling in the inn-yard. "'Ha, <laughs> ha!' cried he suddenly. "'Yonder is the great mogul.' "'Who?' said I. "'Only a man who made me a strange speech at Munich.' "'What was the purport of it?' "'Now you put me in mind of it, Signor. "'It was a kind of message to you, "'but truly it was not worth delivering. "'I believe the fellow to be mad for my part. "'When I came to Munich in search of you, "'I found him living at the King of the Romans, "'and the host gave me an odd account of him.' By his accent he is supposed to be a foreigner, but of what country nobody can tell. He seemed to have no acquaintance in the town, spoke very seldom, and never was seen to smile. He had neither servants nor baggage, but his purse seemed well furnished, and he did much good in the town. Some supposed him to be an Arabian astrologer, others to be a travelling Mount Banc, and many declared that he was Dr. Faustus, whom the devil had sent back to Germany. The landlord, however, told me that he had the best reasons to believe him to be the great mogul incognito. But the strange speech, Theodore. True, I had almost forgotten the speech. Indeed, for that matter, it would not have been a great loss if I had forgotten it altogether. You are to know, Signor, that while I was inquiring about you of the landlord, this stranger passed by. He stopped and looked at me earnestly. Youth! said he in a solemn voice. He whom you seek has found that which he would fain loose. My hand alone can dry up the blood. Bid your master wish for me when the clock strikes one. How? cried I, starting from my sofa. The words which Theodore had repeated seemed to imply the stranger's knowledge of my secret. Fly to him, my boy. Entreat him to grant me one moment's conversation. Theodore was surprised at the vivacity of my manner. However, he asked no questions, but hastened to obey me. I waited his return impatiently, but a short space of time had elapsed when he again appeared and ushered the expected guest into my chamber. He was a man of majestic presence. His countenance was strongly marked, and his eyes were large, black, and sparkling. 
yet there was a something in his look which the moment that i saw him inspired me with a secret awe not to say horror he was dressed plainly his hair hung wildly upon his brow and a band of black velvet which encircled his forehead spread over his features an additional gloom his countenance wore the marks of profound melancholy his step was slow and his manner grave stately and solemn he saluted me with politeness and having replied to the usual compliments of introduction he motioned to theodore to quit the chamber the page instantly withdrew i know your business said he without giving me time to speak i have the power of releasing you from your nightly visitor but this cannot be done before sunday on the hour when the sabbath morning breaks spirits of darkness have least influence over mortals after saturday the nun shall visit you no more may i not inquire said i by what means you are in possession of a secret which i have carefully concealed from the knowledge of every one how can i be ignorant of your distresses when their cause at this moment stands beside you i started the stranger continued though to you only visible for one hour in the twenty-four neither day or night does she ever quit you nor will she ever quit you till you have granted her request and what is that request that she must herself explain it lies not in my knowledge wait with patience for the night of saturday all shall be then cleared up i dared not press him further he soon after changed the conversation and talked of various matters he named people who had ceased to exist for many centuries and yet with whom he appeared to have been personally acquainted I could not mention a country, however distant, which he had not visited, nor could I sufficiently admire the extent and variety of his information. I remarked to him that having travelled, seen, and known so much must have given him infinite pleasure. He shook his head mournfully. No one, he replied, is adequate to comprehending the misery of my lot. Fate obliges me to be constantly in movement. I am not permitted to pass more than a fortnight in the same place. I have no friend in the world, and, from the restlessness of my destiny, I never can acquire one. Fain would I lay down my miserable life, for I envy those who enjoy the quiet of the grave. But death eludes me, and flies from my embrace. In vain do I throw myself in the way of danger. I plunge into the ocean, the waves throw me back with abhorrence upon the shore i rush into fire the flames recoil at my approach i oppose myself to the fury of banditti their swords become blunted and break against my breast the hungry tiger shudders at my approach and the alligator flies from a monster more horrible than itself god has set his seal upon me and all his creatures respect this fatal mark he put his hand to the velvet which was bound round his forehead there was in his eyes an expression of fury, despair, and malevolence that struck horror to my very soul. An involuntary convulsion made me shudder. The stranger perceived it. Such is the curse imposed on me, he continued. I am doomed to inspire all who look on me with terror and detestation. You already feel the influence of the charm, and with every succeeding moment will feel it more. I will not add to your sufferings by my presence. Farewell till Saturday. As soon as the clock strikes twelve, expect me at your chamber door. 
Having said this, he departed, leaving me in astonishment at the mysterious turn of his manner and conversation. His assurances that I should soon be relieved from the apparition's visit produced a good effect upon my constitution. Theodore, whom I rather treated as an adopted child than a domestic, was surprised at his return to observe the amendment in my looks. He congratulated me on this symptom of returning health, and declared himself delighted at my having received so much benefit from my conference with the great mogul. Upon inquiry, I found that the stranger had already passed eight days in Redisbon. According to his own account, therefore, he was only to remain there six days longer. Saturday was still at the distance of three. Oh, with what impatience did I expect its arrival! In the interim, the bleeding nun continued her nocturnal visits, but hoping soon to be released from them altogether, the effects which they produced on me became less violent than before. The wished-for night arrived. To avoid creating suspicion, I retired to bed at my usual hour, but as soon as my attendants had left me, I dressed myself again and prepared for the stranger's reception. He entered my room upon the turn of midnight. A small chest was in his hand, which he placed near the stove. He saluted me without speaking. I returned the compliment, observing an equal silence. He then opened his chest. The first thing which he produced was a small wooden crucifix. He sank upon his knees, gazed upon it mournfully, and cast his eyes towards heaven. He seemed to be praying devoutly. At length he bowed his head respectfully, kissed the crucifix thrice, and quitted his kneeling posture. He next drew from the chest a covered goblet. With the liquor which it contained and which appeared to be blood, he sprinkled the floor, and then, dipping it in one end of the crucifix, he described a circle in the middle of the room. Round about this he placed various relics, skulls, thigh-bones, etc. I observed then he disposed them all in the forms of crosses. Lastly, he took out a large Bible and beckoned me to follow him into the circle. I obeyed. "'Be cautious not to utter a syllable,' whispered the stranger. "'Step not out of the circle, and as you love yourself, dare not to look upon my face.' Holding the crucifix in one hand, the Bible in the other, he seemed to read with profound attention. The clock struck one. As usual, I heard the spectre's steps upon the staircase, but I was not seized with the accustomed shivering. I waited her approach with confidence. She entered the room, drew near the circle, and stopped. The stranger muttered some words to me unintelligible. Then, raising his head from the book, and extending the crucifix towards the ghost, he pronounced in a voice distinct and solemn, Beatrice! 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 "'What wouldst thou?' replied the apparition in a hollow, faltering tone. "'What disturbs thy sleep? Why dost thou afflict and torture this youth? How can rest be restored to thy unquiet spirit?' "'I dare not tell. I must not tell. Fain would I repose in my grave.' but stern commands force me to prolong my punishment. Knowest thou this blood? Knowest thou in whose veins it flowed? B. 
Beatrice, Beatrice, in his name I charge thee to answer me. I dare not disobey my taskers. Darest thou disobey me? He spoke in a commanding tone and drew the sable band from his forehead. In spite of his injunctions to the contrary, curiosity would not suffer me to keep my eyes off his face. I raised them and beheld a burning cross impressed upon his brow. For the horror with which this object inspired me I cannot count, but I never felt its equal. My senses left me for some moments. A mysterious dread overcame my courage, and had not the exerciser caught my hand, I should have fallen out of the circle. When I recovered myself I perceived that the burning cross had produced an effect no less violent upon the spectre. Her countenance expressed reverence and horror, and her visionary limbs were shaken by fear. "'Yes,' she said at length. "'I tremble at that mark. "'I respect it. "'I obey you. "'Know then that my bones lie still unburied. "'They rot in the obscurity of Lindenburg Hole. "'None but this youth has the right of consigning them to the grave.' His own lips have made over to me his body and his soul. Never will I give back his promise. Never shall he know a night devoid of terror, unless he engages to collect my mouldering bones and deposit them in the family vault of his Andalusian castle. Then let thirty masses be said for the repose of my spirit, and I trouble this world no more. Now let me depart. Those flames are scorching. He let the hand drop slowly, which held the crucifix, and which till then he had pointed towards her. The apparition bowed her head, and her form melted into air. The exerciser led me out of the circle. He replaced the Bible, etc., in the chest, and then addressed himself to me, who stood near him speechless from astonishment. Don Ramon, you have heard the conditions on which repose is promised you. Be it your business to fulfill them to the letter. For me, nothing more remains than to clear up the darkness still spread over the spectre's history, and inform you that, when living, Beatrice bore the name of Las Cisternas. She was the great-aunt of your grandfather. In quality of your relation, her ashes demand respect from you, though the enormity of her crimes must excite your abhorrence. The nature of those crimes no one is more capable of explaining to you than myself. I was personally acquainted with the holy man who proscribed her nocturnal riots in the castle of Lindenburg, and I hold this narrative from his own lips. Beatrice de las Cisternas took the veil at an early age, not by her own choice, but at the express command of her parents. She was then too young to regret the pleasures of which her profession deprived her, but no sooner did her warm and voluptuous character begin to be developed than she abandoned herself freely to the impulse of her passions, and seized the first opportunity to procure their gratification. 
this opportunity was at length presented after many obstacles which only added new force to her desires she contrived to elope from the convent and fled to germany with the baron lindenberg she lived at his castle several months as his avowed concubine all bavaria was scandalized by her impudent and abandoned conduct her feasts vied in luxury with cleopatra's and lindenberg became the theatre of the most unbridled debauchery not satisfied with displaying the incontinence of a prostitute she professed herself an atheist she took every opportunity to scoff at her monastic vows and loaded with ridicule the most sacred ceremonies of religion possessed of a character so depraved she did not long confine her affections to one object soon after her arrival at the castle the baron's younger brother attracted her notice by his strong marked features gigantic stature and herculean limbs she was not of an humour to keep her inclination long unknown but she found in otto von lindenberg her equal in depravity he returned her passion just sufficiently to increase it and when he had worked it up to the desired pitch he fixed the price of his love at his brother's murder the wretch consented to this horrible agreement a night was pitched upon for perpetrating the deed otto who resided on a small estate a few miles distant from the castle promised that at one in the morning he would be waiting for her at lindenberg hole that he would bring with him a party of chosen friends by whose aid he doubted not being able to make himself master of the castle and that his next step should be the uniting her hand to his it was this last promise which overruled every scruple of beatrice since in spite of his affection for her the baron had declared positively that he never would make her his wife the fatal night arrived the baron slept in the arms of his perfidious mistress when the castle bell struck one immediately beatrice drew a dagger from underneath her pillow and plunged it in her paramour's heart the baron uttered a single dreadful groan and expired the murderess quitted her bed hastily took a lamp in one hand in the other the bloody dagger and bent her course towards the cavern the porter dared not to refuse opening the gates to one more dreaded in the castle than its master beatrice reached lindenberg hole unopposed where according to promise she found otto waiting for her he received and listened to her narrative with transport but ere she had time to ask why he came unaccompanied he convinced her that he wished for no witnesses to their interview anxious to conceal his share in the murder and to free himself from a woman whose violent and atrocious character made him tremble with reason for his own safety he had resolved on the destruction of his wretched agent rushing upon her suddenly he wrested the dagger from her hand he plunged it still reeking with his brother's blood in her bosom and put an end to her existence by repeated blows otto now succeeded to the barony of lindenberg the murder was attributed solely to the fugitive nun and no one suspected him to have persuaded her to the action but though his crime was unpunished by man god's justice permitted him not to enjoy in peace his blood-stained honours her bones lying still unburied in the cave the restless soul of beatrice continued to inhabit the castle dressed in her religious habit in memory of her vows broken to heaven furnished with the dagger which had drank the blood of her paramour and holding the lamp which had guided her flying steps every night did she stand before the bed of otto 
The most dreadful confusion reigned through the castle. The vaulted chambers resounded with shrieks and groans, and the spectre, as she ranged along the antique galleries, uttered an incoherent mixture of prayers and blasphemies. Otto was unable to withstand the shock which he felt at this fearful vision. Its horrors increased with every succeeding appearance. His alarm at length became so insupportable that his heart burst, and one morning he was found in his bed totally deprived of warmth and animation. His death did not put an end to the nocturnal riots. The bones of Beatrice continued to lie unburied, and her ghost continued to haunt the castle. The domains of Lindenburg now fell to a distant relation, but, terrified by the accounts given him of the bleeding nun, so was the spectre called by the multitude, the new baron called to his assistance a celebrated exerciser. This holy man succeeded in obliging her to temporary repose, but, though she discovered to him her history, he was not permitted to reveal it to others, or cause her skeleton to be removed to hallowed ground. That office was reserved for you. Until your coming, her ghost was doomed to wander about the castle and lament the crime which she had there committed. However, the exerciser obliged her to silence during his lifetime. So long as he existed, the haunted chamber was shut up, and the spectre was invisible. At his death, which happened in five years after, she again appeared, but only once on every fifth year, on the same day, and at the same hour, when she plunged her knife in the heart of her sleeping lover. She then visited the cavern which held her mouldering skeleton, returned to the castle as soon as the clock struck two, and was seen no more till the next five years had elapsed. She was doomed to suffer during the space of a century. That period has passed. Nothing now remains but to consign to the grave the ashes of Beatrice. I have been the means of releasing you from your visionary tormentor, and amidst all the sorrows which oppress me, to think that I have been of use to you is some consolation. Youth, farewell. May the ghost of your relation enjoy that rest in the tomb which the Almighty's vengeance has denied to me forever. Here the stranger prepared to quit the apartment. Stay yet one moment, said I. You have satisfied my curiosity with regard to the spectre, but you leave me a prey to yet greater respecting yourself. Deign to inform me to whom I am under such real obligations. You mentioned circumstances long past and people long dead. You were personally acquainted with the exerciser, who by your own account has been deceased near a century. How am I to account for this? What means that burning cross upon your forehead, and why did the sight of it strike such horror to my soul? On these points he for some time refused to satisfy me. At length, overcome by my entreaties, he consented to clear up the whole on condition that I would defer his explanation till the next day. With this request I was obliged to comply, and he left me. In the morning my first care was to inquire after the mysterious stranger. Conceive my disappointment when informed that he had quitted Redisbone. I dispatched messengers in pursuit of him, but in vain. No traces of the fugitive were discovered. Since that moment I never have heard any more of him, and tis most probable that I never shall. Lorenzo here interrupted his friend's narrative. How, said he, you have never discovered who he was, or even formed a guess? Pardon me, replied the Marquise. 
When I related this adventure to my uncle, the Cardinal Duke, he told me that he had no doubt of this singular man's being the celebrated character known universally by the name of the Wandering Jew. His not being permitted to pass more than fourteen days on the same spot, the burning cross impressed upon his forehead, the effect which it produced upon the beholders, and many other circumstances gave this supposition the color of truth. The cardinal is fully persuaded of it, and, for my own part, I am inclined to adopt the only solution which offers itself to this riddle. I return to the narrative from which I have digressed. End of chapter 4, part 2. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.